Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Dave, my mind is going. I can feel it. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, a new study suggests that pornography might serve as a means of existential escape from boredom. How are we not doing a segment on this study? <laughs> because it's so obviously true. <laughs> right. <exactly. laughs> the Pope is Catholic. The sun um, rises in the east. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, we could have. This paper contributes on pornography consumption by highlighting how it may be used for emotional avoidance, excitement seeking, and sexual pleasure in response to boredom. It's just so obvious. Yeah. Like it's <laughs> yeah. mild, mild introspection. <laughs> yep. It's funny because it's obviously true. It's not necessarily that people think of it that way. You know, right. but when you think about it for 10 seconds, it's like, oh, sure, exactly. No, yeah. I mean, it's right up the alley. It's right there with like a denial of death. Uh, yep. you know, th those views of, of sex as an escape from from the, the existential certainty of meaninglessness and death. And uh, so, you know. If anybody ever asks me, uh, I will. Yeah, <laughs> I will be. I suffer I, from I, the deeply human existential. Like, it's, I just—it's not just that I want to wank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you wouldn't understand, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are the person to first say, but like, I thought you were right that sometimes, like, your life is such that, like, when you jerk off, it feels like you were productive. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that you got something done, at least, you know? Uh, Sounds like something I would say. <laughs> and I think that's absolutely right, too. Like, there are days, well, at least I jerked off, you know? <laughs> I spent the rest of the fucking day on Twitter or whatever, you know, no, like, it's going true. down Twitter some rabbit hole. <laughs> but, like... <it> was <laughs> Twitter makes jerking off seem like... Like a, like a productive I cleaned day. the gutters. I jerked <laughs> off. I went for a walk. Like it wasn't a terrible day. <laughs> for for a brief three minutes, I escaped the pain of knowing about my own death. <laughs> All right. In the first segment, we have to talk about your society, um, the society of personality and social psychology. Personality SPSB. are requiring Stalinist. <laughs> uh, Maoist kind of submission to a very particular ideology. I guess the question is, are you going to stay silent? <laughs> you know, okay. 
So, as as you hinted, what's going on is that the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, the biggest society that represents the people who you know who do what I do, um, are requiring now for conference submissions. Um, that you, along with like the description of your talk, like whatever I'm studying, uh, masturbation and existentialism, um, you you include um, a statement about how what you're doing uh, contributes to like anti-racism and equality and uh, equity, inclusion and anti-racism. You know, two psychologists, four beers actually tackled this uh, a few weeks ago on one of their episodes. Yeah. And it's worth it's worth a listen. I, I was listening to it as I was on a walk because I hadn't actually heard about these requirements. And I was actually genuinely upset. Um, so uh, I was on the side that this should not be um, a requirement. Guys, I feel like the details probably matter. They act, yeah. they actually do. So, so what are the exact requirements? So when you submit an abstract, the reviewers are given the instruction to read and evaluate each abstract. I'm reading here now verbatim. With an eye toward the strength and rigor, contribution, interest value of the submission in light of the general SPSP audience. Separately, please evaluate the extent to which the submission advances SPSP's goal of promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. And so it says under the equity and anti-racism uh, category, it says evaluate the extent to which the submission advances SPSP's goal of promoting equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. To do so, please consider the equity statement, which you're supposed to submit, as well as the submission as a whole. Submissions advancing equity, inclusion, and anti-racist goals may include but are not limited to diverse research per participants, e.g. understudied or underserved populations. Diverse research methods, e.g. methodology that promotes equity or engages underserved communities or scholars. Diverse members of the research teams, uh, those from underrepresented socio-demographic backgrounds, from an array of career stages from outside the United States or with professional affiliations that are not typical at SPSP. Uh, and presentation content, e.g. prejudice and discrimination, critical theories, cross-cultural research. So then the reviewer is instructed to rate the abstract and the diversity statement on a three-point scale. Three is exceptional. The submission clearly and strongly advances SPSSP's goal of promoting equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. Two, satisfactory. And one, not applicable. The submission does not advance SPSSP's goal. Um, and that scale will be combined with whatever uh, whatever other rating scale they use to evaluate like the merits of the work, like the scientific Oh, they do? They quantify the them? So they, they actually make you give a number. But does that number then determine, is it combined with other numbers about rigor to then just kind yeah. of figure out whether it makes it or not? Yes. Okay. And what's not, what's not clear is how much, like we don't know how much of those three points. I have no idea whether the reviewers, like whether the other scientific merit ratings are three points as well, or if they're like 97 points, you know. But do like, they definitely just... have number scales? Knowing them, yes. Like I would think, if this is on a number scale, then then the others would be on a number scale. Because yeah, you know, to be fair, they do get like thousands of poster applications, so so they need some way of of like ranking right. them once they get all the ratings in. The thing is, like, this is what pissed me off, um, and I just sort of calmed down. And actually, when Uel was here, and we had to abandon the <laughs> the segment that we recorded with him. Yeah, speaking um, but... of like being chilled by a woke mob. <laughs> I blame you know Yoel puts himself forward as this champion of free speech, but not not that time. 
Um, yeah. So we talked a little bit about it um, with Yoel because I was really heated. Like I, I, I think personally, all of the things that SPSP says about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, is all—they're all great. We should really work hard toward improving um, diversity of all sorts. There's a problem about like quantifying, like whether or not something, you know, does it? If I use like a a researcher from Eastern Europe who's not well represented in the organization, does that count? That might be the biggest reason why it's kind of silly, but. In principle, I think what bothers me the most is that uh, the scientific work would be evaluated based on whether or not it meets these like diversity goals. Like I feel like those two really should be separate. And uh, there's like a weird, weird like like for half of the people, it's obviously the case that this was a good idea. Well, not half, but like everybody I talked to, like some people, they're like, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Like that's and then there's people like me who are just like, what the fuck is this doing in like the evaluation of whether my poster should be accepted? So like, I'm like, it's like what Newcomb's my post- problem. It's like <laughs> everyone thinks the answer is obvious. Exactly. They just disagree right. about what the disagree. answer is. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so I, you know, I kept my mouth shut cause I'm not a political guy as you know. Yeah. That's I, the problem is people like you keeping silent. Keep- <laughs> um, you know who else? You know who else stayed silent? SPSP's willing, willing executioners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Jonathan Haidt uh, posted on his heterodox blog um, an article entitled "The Two Fiduciary Duties of Professors," in which he said basically, like the goal of a professor to the students should be to like teach them well and to to science it should be truth like or just a dedication to truth and we can't serve two masters and like if you're making me put social justice in my work then like i feel like you're violating the sanctity of my dedication to truth you corrupt and subvert the fiduciary's ability to carry out their duty yeah and he had an exchange with laura king who is the social psychologist the president of spsp and they didn't see eye to eye. So John Haidt says he's he's uh, probably going to quit the association. And here's what what gets. Well, let's talk. I want to know what you thought of the essay, like of what John <laughs> oh, Haidt <man>. said. Okay, <laughs> is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> there's the issues, and then there's the essay. <laughs> so there's the issue, which honestly, I think I'm probably on your side. That I find this kind of posturing, and especially in association with like the anti-racism. Anti-racism seems like it has a more specific ideological strategy uh, for grappling with the problems that we have. It's too specific to try to make everybody in a freaking university society, like a like a, a society that is supposed to be about science. I'm probably with you about issue, but this, oh man, is this like, I, if, if like this would send me in the other direction. Like, <laughs> like what the fuck happened to John Haidt? Like, I feel like he used to be, have like a sense of humor and I don't know, some sort of self-awareness. Like, who is this fucking thing for? So it is the most tedious, plodding, sanctimonious piece of writing that like, I the idea that this is going to convince somebody who's kind of on the fence about this particular issue, that's, there's no way. Like, I, it's just, it, like, 
in the rest of this essay, I'd like to introduce the concept of fiduciary duty, which I believe complements the concept of telos and can ex help explain the moral incoherence that has overtaken the Academy since 2015, as well as give us a moral foundation upon which to stand when we resist pressures to violate our duties. This is just like dead, like deadly dull. And it feels like this is the last thing uh, people need in order for, to actually address this problem. Like we need, like, we don't need like another fucking Atlantic article about this. Like, uh, I think the Chronicle might have pub republished, uh, like posted this. Um, yeah, like all, yeah. but but the Chronicle all posts like these kinds of yeah. essays like once every like four days, right? Like it's got to be somebody I don't know, like somebody from within that gets mad about this, you know, like a Vlad, yeah. you know, yeah, like, somebody, this, uh, that this, gonna, like yeah. nobody's gonna listen to this, like like I actually was mad and also wondering like because i've like hung out with john height like i don't like this isn't the person i hung out with the person that wrote this essay it's just yeah. too self-important and serious and whatever this is it is not uh this battle of fucking good and evil and truth and that right that there is is like the for me nail on the head it's not a battle between good and evil and and you know what it's not like my disagreements with SPSP don't require a metaphor and like the notion of telos to like aid it mm -hmm. like i it's the simplest of objections which is if i'm doing research say on like i don't know like um whether or not uh disgust is two emotions or one Right. Like, uh, or how physiologically, like, we can distinguish between disgust and contempt. Um, I, I think that doing a mandatory statement saying, like, how this meets the goals of, of diversity, equity, and anti racism, like, sure, I could cobble something together, but we know that that's not like the point of my research. And, um, there's a ton of social psychology that has to do with equality and it has to do with prejudice and discrimination. And that's great. We should have symposium on that, like symposium on that. We should have, uh, uh, we should encourage people to submit. We should even bump those up yeah. like Definitely. whatever, yeah. but, but to actually put a score and essentially punish the science because that's no matter what they say, that's what, what this is doing, what putting a scale and a score and rating me low because it doesn't meet anti-racism goals is what that's what it's doing is essentially driving all research to be not only of one topic, but of, of one conclusion, you know, maybe not of one conclusion, but certainly of one topic. And I think that that's actually bad for the science. And that's like, you know, call me a positivist if you want, but I want like a, a lot of these things don't yeah. belong in, in, in the science. Okay. So all that said, yeah, just to get to what you're saying about John Hyde. I like John Haidt. I consider him a friend. I don't, I'm not going to bad mouth him. You can go ahead. But it, this, I completely agree that this actually, under the guise of trying to seem dispassionate and rational, yeah. it comes across as moralistic and and pompous and insufferable. Yeah, in a way that I think directly violates his own like dedication to sort of like crossing these, you know, like like building bridges. So it's become now this moralistic fight where I see some of my good friends on Twitter like mocking John Hype for, for like even insinuating that he's racist for saying this stuff. And I'm like, that's not fair. But, but also 
there's just simpler ways to do this. Like now it's just a culture war thing. Now it's just I said that universities can have many goals such as fiscal health and successful sports teams and many values such as social justice, national service or Christian humility. But they can have only one telos because a telos is like a north star. It is the end, purpose or goal around which the institution is structured. An institution can rotate on one axis only. Like this is what I think that somebody like kidnapped him and like <laughs> put something in his brain or something yeah, like that. He used to have like, slideshows about baby Jesus butt plugs. Exactly. Right. And like <laughs> brothers and sisters fucking. And now it's like the telos is a North star that can only rotate on one access. But this, you know what? Like we need to add the concept of a fiduciary duty to this. <laughs> like, look, at some point, it ha- it can't be just cranky old white guys or like yeah. professional anti woke people, uh, yeah. John Height and like hetero. Like, of course, the fucking heterodox academy is going to be against this, right? Yeah. Like, that- and Quillette and all those people in the Chronicle, the people who are in charge of this and making this decision won't listen to them, rightly so in in a lot of ways, and they probably won't listen to us, and rightly so too. But like, that's why I say the criticism has got to come from the people who are very sympathetic to uh, a lot of their aims but this crosses a line and they need to and that's the thing I guess that's a little discouraging by the people who are just saying well it's stupid but we do want more diversity. I, I, and, and in some ways, like, so we have something like this for jobs, right? When somebody applies for a job, they say, like, in what way they can uh, address, you know, we have the third most diverse student body in the whole nation. You know, how will they, what they bring to the university, like, take that into account or something like that? Yeah. And, like, we don't give a rating about that. And, like, um, but, but we, we do look at it, I guess. So maybe it's just a way of signaling, like, this is the best case you could make for it. It's a, it's a way of signaling that you are broadly sympathetic to increasing diversity and, and uh, decreasing bias and letting new voices be heard that haven't been able to be heard before because of like structural and systemic like reasons like it's just a way of signaling that you're trying to like address that but it's not really like affecting the science you know Uh, except being more open to uh, a wider range of approaches or something like that yeah that would be okay yeah, I mean, this is why I do. I do personally think that this crosses a line, and I am, you know, like I've I considered just like not even attending the conference for this reason. I don't know whether or not that's going to make a difference in my decision, but that's the concern exactly as you lay it out. And here's the the crazy thing. So if you listen to the uh, the episode of Two Psychologists Four Beers with Yoel and Alexa, Yoel lays out the issue as he sees it. And Alexa, who's very reasonable, uh, um, is like, eh, I don't see a problem. You know, I did the same to Nikki. Like, I was pretty upset. And she's like, eh, I don't see a problem. It's like we're seeing two completely different parts of a Necker cube. One is the very real concern, which I have, which is like we lack diversity in some real important ways. And there's so much about these statements that I believe and endorse. It, I should be allowed to say However, at that stage at which you're telling me that I'm getting a score on whether my scientific submission meets these goals, like, I think there's something deeply wrong with that. Like, I, I don't think that's the way things ought to be done. At the very least, it should be a decision that was reached by the group as a whole. And, you know, 
if people say like, if you don't like it, then why don't you just leave the society? Well, that's what's going to happen. Like instead of having like a real discussion around it and yeah, it's people like Lee Jessam and John Haidt who are and the Quillette crowd who are the ones speaking out against this. So it's very easy to to come up with these facile critiques and call them like, well, they're just like I saw a tweet that said John just wants a, like his secret excuse to be racist, which I think is completely unfair. Yeah, it's that he's been kidnapped and is being held hostage. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he was always weirdly more serious than his his publications and talks would would. Uh, and, um, yeah, and betray. moralistic. That's true. Yeah, but so, still, but, this is takes it to another like <laughs> cranky old guy. But not even like cranky old like Grandpa Simpson. It's it's like worse than that kind of because of yeah. how self serious it is. It's like there's not a tiny little hint of sense of humor or like a way of trying to uh note the irony of no. kind of the like none of that it's like 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 a, you're writing like a papal decree or like a pat like an objection to a papal decree or something like that this is a huge problem with this particular crowd yeah. like a huge problem a complete lack of of irony just humor um, ability to laugh at themselves and like yeah. take themselves it's less true. seriously. They're all it's, like that. It's crazy. The Yasha Monk, like Yasha yeah. Monk, like fucking. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. It's like like you can't just can you th think about just having a beer and just maybe being like ah you know what that was a little bit pompous the way that I phrased that right yeah. like Paul would do like <laughs> yeah, Paul, exactly. Paul you know like Paul is a good example of someone who probably believes a lot of the things they believe but he's yeah. he would never write this like in a million years would he write something like that right. Uh, right. column that height yeah exactly I yeah there just needs to be a way like I want to register my disagreement about that very specific policy decision that was made without without seeming like I'm a curmudgeonly old white guy who who doesn't care about diversity because it feels like it, that's possible like it's I, not, I want yeah. it to be and that's yeah. why like you know hopefully like we've said many a time like you in a podcast like this you get to know us and know our, our opinions and hopefully people know where I stand with all that stuff like in fact more radical than many of our listeners want me to be when it comes to shit like race but not uh, class, like, interesting. But not. <laughs> Fuck the poor whites. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's just a bit, yeah. You're right. With with uh, you, there are just some people you don't want writing uh, essays on your side. <laughs> I mean, exactly. But it seems like it's all of them, you know? <laughs> know. And that's, I guess, one of their complaints about people like us who like are too cool to even like or, or you know pretend to be too cool to even participate in this debate is you know we're the ones that are staying you know allowing this creep to happen and you know people have been saying that to us forever and I, it's not that there's nothing to that but yeah. like what they're doing isn't helping either and in fact like it's actually making it entrenching the two sides even like more than they are because it's it's a it's a boy who cried wolf thing with with John Haidt and with like a lot of these people is they've been bitching about like the tiniest most bullshit things for the last like seven years fucking some like the Oberlin you know Asian thing that turns out not even to be true or like and as if this is like the the end of civilization. Oh, you're going to get it now. Yeah, it's, a, it's like, this is like fucking a pop, you know, the apocalypse 
uh, of like intellectual inquiry. And, and none of that has been true. Like none of that has been an accurate in any way, like accurate representation of what's going on at even like the universities like Yale and Cornell, never mind like the universities in the rest of the country. So like now you write something here, which seems more legitimate. It comes from a more, like it's at least the target is more legitimate. And it's like, how are you supposed to take this seriously? Yeah. I, you know, I think that they've been, you know, chicken little for a while too, but I do, I do want to hear register that I, I think that the universe universities have changed in this regard. Like the, those stories that you, you mentioned, like some, some of them are trumped up and some of them are used to, to, to like cry out about this, you know, great conspiracy of, of liberals. But it is a diff- very different environment than it was 15 years ago, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, and right, and right. I think that they they see that change and they fo- hyper focus on certain changes that are so threatening to them that that becomes their central the central agenda of their discourse. Meanwhile, nobody ever says like, "Hey, you know what's great is that like you can't really tell racist jokes in class anymore." <laughs> Like right. that's a good thing that's happened. Like yeah, yeah. universities and you feel have some changed. pressure to like no, yeah. no, that's true too. But I would also say that the things they exaggerate are like you can't say that like men and women are different anymore. Yeah. Like you yeah, can't yeah. say there are biological differences in between the sexes. You like if you if you commit a microaggression, you'll be before like a Title IX tribunal. Like and just <laughs> right. none of that is true at all. Like right. at all. Like there it's definitely uh ways that things have changed and I would say probably more for the better than for yeah. worse in terms of like the the norms, but like not in the way that they're describing. Yeah. Well that's why like I think that the inability to focus on the fact that say for students of color, like this is actually uh, many academic environments are better places now than they were uh, 15 years ago for young women. Right. Like the fact that it's like actually against policy to fuck your professor, like for your professor to, to (laughs) grab ass at you. All of these things like betray a a real lack of, (laughs) (laughs) all of these betray a, 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 a sort of lack of perspective taking about w- what these changes have entailed. Yeah. And so that's why I feel actually like I I don't feel like speaking about most of this stuff because it, it turns out to be Red Sox Yankees once it gets into the public discourse and reality like I, I let's pick yeah. our battles. Like and yeah. you and I m- maybe people would accuse us of being on the sideline, but the truth of the matter is like I we've seen the consequences of 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 saying certain things like the reaction that it gets which is never very positive once you start speaking on hot button issues and so we tend to avoid it but that doesn't mean that we haven't actually come out and say exactly how we feel about this stuff yeah we just don't say it for every fucking episode because that's not what our podcast if you want that go to uh the jesse single (laughs) (laughs) Uh, blocked and reported yeah and also deconstructing the gurus um (laughs) yeah no uh i one of the things that you inspired me to say which is philosophy now 
the number of women are rising within, you know, we had this shameful thing where it was all men and definitely almost entirely white men. One of the things like, like, so when I did the first Very Bad Wizard book, I had all guys and, and I remember uh, Venda Levita who was um, editing it was like, you know, this is great. It, it is all guys. I hadn't even noticed that. Yeah, you know, that's right. That's and then, exactly. like, yeah. I, and then like I added Josh Green and Leanne Young, but that was like, and then with the next edition, like it was in my head. Holy shit! I need to have more women. So then I have like Susan Wolf and Valerie Tiberius and and Nancy Sherman and like those are some like my some of my favorite interviews. And it's like it's good for us to be thinking like this. Now I'm reading more. Like I, now I actually think in my head. Like if this syllabus is too, it's like all men and all maybe white men like I want to diversify that and when I do that it's like good it's good yeah. for the course it's like makes the course better it makes me more excited about teaching some of these things it's like a lot of that stuff that was definitely like I'm sure inspired in part by oh god they're like I don't want everybody to ask why is this all white men or whatever yeah. like maybe that's part of the initial motivation but it's a like it gets me to do something that's actually good for the philosophy good for the course good for the my fiduciary duty to truth it's good yeah. for all of that exactly you know? exactly yeah. and that 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 phenomenology of being like a regular old white guy and not noticing mm -hmm. like is hard to get out of like it takes some real perspective taking and and it's so often framed in terms of like oh now we have the pressure to add women to it it's like wait we like you <laughs> like it's completely betraying the fact that they never thought of like what the young woman was experiencing exactly. when they were in class, you know, like it's, yeah, it's crazy. And, and it's going to be, it's a, it's a slow, heavy task. Like the, the changing your syllabus is difficult because of the history of philosophy, right? Like, yeah, it right. actually requires some, some work. That's a good thing. Like we are blinkered. We have been blinkered by the way we were raised and yeah. brought up and it's good to try to expand that. And sometimes you need an extra little push. That's what's hard about this is because it's like, sometimes the push does come in the way of these expectations that you're going to be more diverse yeah. in your approach. Right. And that's a good example for where I draw, where I would draw a line, like um, being, being asked to diversify a syllabus um, versus having somebody look over your syllabus and tell you you need to add like at least four more women to it or else like you you, you know you're in danger of losing <laughs> sure but no but that but nobody's doing that nobody's doing that that's where the spsp thing though is is crossing yeah. a line to me where it's like yeah. you might not get in now they haven't said so maybe it won't matter at all but if it doesn't matter at all then why why do the whole coding thing right presumably it won't signal, matter yeah right? But, but the number thing is weird because, you know, that's what makes it not like some of these diversity statements that people can feel free to use or ignore as they right. see fit. Like it's uh, it's more like the just like, oh, I got to give a number to this and that could affect whether it gets into this prestigious. There's this other misunderstanding that's clearly happening here between um, Height and Laura King where Height reads the word anti-racism. And immediately thinks that this is the endorsement of a particular view. Like Robin D'Angelo. Yeah, Ibram Kendi. Kendi. And uh, I think for someone like Laura King and for many people I know, that's just saying like you're against racism. 
And so it's almost just trivially true that you would be like, if you're a modern human being in an educated environment, like just we, no, no, no. We just meant like you're, you're like you're anti-racism. Yeah. yeah, you're opposed yeah. to racism. But then yeah. you shouldn't use that word because it is associated. Like that is like Ibrahim yeah. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Yeah. People who are very much opposed to and working to address racism who aren't part of that school, they don't use that word. They don't say I'm an anti-racist, yeah. you know? So like, I, I think that's, I, I yeah. actually think it's kind of legitimate legitimate yeah. to, to object to that word because it is implying a very specific approach to like the massive like problems of structural racism. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. I, I think that they are so in it, that world that they don't even think twice about it that's that's the part that's surprising to me the sort of like shock like what wait you're against like this seemingly <laughs> innocuous thing um as somebody else pointed out too you know what values like of course spsb has values when it comes to diversity equity inclusion um and we probably have values about a whole lot of other things like why not say that your abstraction includes something about how we're care about the environment or something like that. A ton of moral values that we could choose to highlight that most certainly most of us would endorse. Um, but th- picking this one out seems like an extra political. What about like animal welfare? Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Well, be like us. Don't <laughs> actually do anything, but somehow be better than the whole discourse. Uh, that's uh, a <laughs> that's very good segue into our next <laughs> to our next. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back to talk about E Unibus Plurum. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by our longtime sponsor, BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, one of the primary benefits of therapy is to help you get unstuck, mentally speaking. When we're faced with challenges, we can find it hard to problem solve because we're just stuck in the same rut, the same way of thinking. Sometimes for me, for instance, stress can cause me to ruminate on the same thoughts over and over again, rather than be able to take a step back and look at what's really causing that stress and how I can address it. And here's where a therapist can really be of value. Therapists can guide you into new ways of thinking and help you get unstuck and leave you with a greater set of skills to be able to problem solve independently. That's what they're trained to do after all. And it can be surprising how helpful it is to get advice just from somebody who cares but is not wrapped up in the same mental loops as we are. I was personally able to turn to therapy during one of the most stressful times in my life and I found that having a therapist tell me what was bogging me down was liberating. Even if deep down I knew it, I still benefited from having someone say it out loud. Again, someone who is a bit more dispassionate than I was and could see the real problems or the roots of those problems. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online. You can get matched with a therapist within 48 hours after simply filling out a brief survey. And if you don't like that therapist or if there's uh reason to believe that they're not the right match for you, you can switch therapists at any time. So when you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW today to get 10% off of your first month of therapy. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Check it out. Get, get out of your mouth. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners, our community, for all the support you've given us for 10 years. 10, Ten years. Fucking years. And counting. Uh, yeah. We really enjoy the interactions that you have with us, the discussions that you have with us, that you inspire, um, the suggestions that you give us for topics, everything. So if you want to reach out to us, you can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. Again, we read everything. Um, sorry, we don't answer everything, but some of these emails make my day. Um, so mm -hmm. thank you. Um, if you want to tweet to us, you can tweet to at Tamler or at Peas or at Very Bad Wizards. If you want to join in a discussion with some like-minded uh, Very Bad Wizards listeners, you can go to Reddit, uh, to our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards. You can follow us on Instagram. We appreciate that. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can review us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to us, listen on Spotify. All of that we appreciate. And you could tell last. You could tell a friend about us. Yeah, um, we we grew organically, and I assume that it's from people telling friends um, organically, except for the Sam Harris bump. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Uh, aside from that, and speaking of uh, Sam Harris bump, and I don't know if this, like, I don't know if we can get any more Sam Harris listeners than we have. I feel like <laughs> than we have already. But we are having Sam back on the podcast um, next time. We are going to be talking about something that I honestly think uh, people have never heard Sam talk about before, if I had to guess. I could be wrong. So you'll see. Yeah, uh, you'll see. Tune in in a couple of weeks and you're going to find out. Um, we have a good one today, though, so we don't want to yeah. downplay what's coming up. Right. I mean, this is the best episode just, ever. It's, <laughs> it's good. And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can find a bunch of different means of doing that on the support page on Very Bad Wizards. You can buy some merch. You can give us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. Um, you can join our growing Patreon community. And there's been a bunch. There's a bunch of stuff going on right now. We just did the vote for the uh, episode topic. By the way, I don't know if you've looked at it. Like, no. I thought long-termism would be like a kind of a clear winner and I was worried about, you know, because I don't necessarily yeah. want to do that. Yeah. And it's actually like, by, like, it's in last, in dead last by a lot. Like, I but, just Oh, wow. I just looked at it. Wow. Stoicism is winning. Yeah, I think it looks looking like it's going to be stoicism. The only other like possibility is probably the dispossessed. The dispossessed. Yeah. Um yeah, but uh but you know, there's still more people I think uh to vote. But I was shocked. Like I thought like people would want us to talk about it and almost nobody does, at least <laughs> among our uh $5 and up subscriber Patreon. Maybe they're smart enough to know that when we talk about things that we're not that excited about that Makes yeah, for well. I could get excited about it though. I yeah. feel like I could get worked up about it. I'm not even ruling out that we 
do it. I'm just really surprised. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that uh, yeah, you get to do that a couple times a year if you're a five dollar and up supporter. Is vote on the listener selected episodes. If you are a one dollar and up per episode supporter, you get ad free episodes and six volumes. Right, six now of Dave's yeah. beats. Um, That's right. And at $2 and up, you get access to all our growing library of bonus episodes, including something we're putting out now uh, every other week, you know, because if you can't go just more than one week without hearing (laughs) annoying voices, now you don't have to. And um, honestly, I think this is like some of the best stuff we've ever done. Like us, I don't Absolutely. know if it's like it's hard. Like, like I, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, I think it's some of our best work. Yeah, on, it's on what we show. were put on this earth to do. That's <laughs> what it feels like. <laughs> or at least, you know, and we're enjoying it so much. So I'm sure that that's part of it. But yeah, uh, yeah it's the Deadwood pod, uh, podcast, the Ambulators, and we go through every episode in great detail, really scene yep. by scene, and. Um, so there's a bunch more coming down the pike there. That's at $2 and up, $5 and up. In addition to getting to vote, you get to have access to a whole series of Dave's intro to psych lectures, a couple of my, uh, lectures on the symposium at $10 and up. Ooh, I got to post the ask us anything for this month. You get to, uh, ask us anything and we respond to all of your questions in a video. And we also post the audio version of that for our $2 and up subscribers. So there's a lot, there's a lot that you get with this Patreon yep. um, subscription. And we, and that's great because we want to show our gratitude. We really appreciate um, all the support that we get from all of you. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right, let's talk about uh, the David Foster Wallace essay, E Unibus Plurum, uh, essay that I guess was, seems like it was written in 1990, um, but yeah. was first published in 1993 and also in his collection, a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do again. It's very hard. We were just talking about this. It's very hard to just like say what this essay is to give <laughs> right. a concise summary because it's so sprawling, but it's ostensibly about television, you know, about the role that television has played in combating alienation and loneliness. And it's about the uh, prevalence of irony in television and the way that has permeated into larger society, the way it affects the current younger generation who grew up on television of fiction writers, especially like the overeducated MFA, so like of the kind that David Foster Wallace was. Maybe irony has run its course as a way of addressing the ills that we face and we need something new or something different and then all the obstacles to actually doing that. That's yeah. that there's my there's my Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty damn good job. I remember I've never read this, but I do remember either reading part of it or maybe hearing a discussion of it. And I knew that yeah. it discussed irony. Um, and I was excited to read it for that reason. And then as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this hasn't even mentioned irony. And we're like two thirds of the way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is about irony, but that is the yeah. thing that people take from it. I think like if you had to come up with one takeaway is like, 
maybe we need to return to a kind of sincerity that that would be um, at this point the bravest and um, I don't yeah. know most iconoclastic thing that you could do. Um, yeah. So one of the interesting things about this essay is it's very much of its time. We were talking about this. Television completely changes in the time between now and when he wrote this. Yeah. Prestige TV is obviously like at least like eight or nine years away. But even the, the bridge to Prestige TV era and then the explosion of streaming, like, so what he's saying about the, the television landscape, it doesn't apply today um, for reasons we'll talk about. But number one uh, it's a very fascinating look into the television at that time and, you know, and the history of it. But number two, so much of what he says could just apply to now the Internet. You know, so it's like if you if you could substitute what he says about television for our kind of new television, um, which is these forms of media and podcasts and uh, and things like that. And it's then like it has brilliant insights about that, I think. Yeah, well, there's lots to talk about there because I think like the differences between internet cu culture and TV culture are that in some ways the internet is so disjointed <clears throat> that it cannot be talked about as one thing anymore, uh, and that's one huge difference that that he gets to sort of in toward the end he starts foreshadowing or quoting somebody who's who's foreshadowing how <laughs> things like would eerily, eerily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this was written in 1990. So you said this is an essay that's that's um, in some ways outdated. Just in how it describes like the television landscape at the time. Yeah. You know, TV and the, especially the sitcom, which I think is, is uh, a lot of what he discusses, that form was largely unchanged through the 80s, I, I think. You know, it got a little bit more like there was some... Uh, uh, some more diversity in there. It was less, it was a lot, a lot of the same stuff. I, and, and if you, if you were raised, I think in the aughts, it's kind of a different world. I don't know. For sure. There's one huge difference between TV and anything today, including TV, which is that it just doesn't have to as appeal to uh, a mass audience. Anymore. That's right. Like, yeah. um, and because nothing does except like the NFL, and right. so it's just different strategies, but those strategies can include niche shows that will appeal to artistic sensibilities, people like, you know, that are consciously alienating of the audience, you know, yeah. like I, which, a show that I love, but that is um, like Atlanta is, and it's like these season three and season four, it's in a very Lynchian way kind of infuriating a lot of the audience too and then and making it smaller and that's okay now it's like it just wasn't okay at the time right you had to get like bring you had to be the biggest tent to bring the most people in or you were done you couldn't have a show well yeah now that's just not true right at and, all and yeah. part of that was because of the structure of the networks wh where there were you know when i was a kid there were three networks and then there was a fourth that fox came along and you look at the ratings, like Nielsen ratings uh, are basically a number that records how many million households view uh, a show. And when you look at the ratings back, say, like when Cheers and the Cosby show were on, you had like literally a third of the entire nation would watch a show. Uh, yeah. And now 
the most successful shows are an order of magnitude lower than that. Like just, there is no one thing that everybody no, wants. Like even Game of Thrones yeah. or, you know, like whatever reality show that people like, if people's, if those are still big or yeah. whatever, it's, it's such a fraction of what, it, yeah. you know, it used to be for the big time shows. Right. And David, um, if, uh, Dave Foster Wallace starts, he starts seeing that cable might change the landscape but it hasn't really yet. It hasn't like majorly changed the landscape yeah. at the time. Yeah. I was trying to think in what way is what he's saying true of television today. And I think a lot of the stuff that he says about what we turn to television for. So he, he sets up this guy, Joe briefcase, yeah. um, who is just kind of a normal guy who works, you know, one of these jobs that you know it's it's a job it's not something where you feel like you get to express yourself and it's not something where you're necessarily spending your time uh around a lot of people that you have stuff in common with you're not having deep conversations and so you start to feel lonely you start to feel isolated and what television does is give you companionship right yeah. it gives you it's like a simulation of uh, something that can either distract you, but not just distract you, like actually address your loneliness. But in the end, it is still uh, a television. And as he says, it's these pixelated things that are coming out of your furniture. And like, so it's not, it's not real companionship. It, it gives you some of those like companionship uh, vibes, but it's not real companionship. And I think this is the interesting thing that I think still applies. It's like when you're watching a lot, uh, when you're watching TV, Joe Sixpack, but also I think this is true of everybody, like for some TV that they watch, it's like, it's, it's satisfying a need, but you also have deep down this nagging worry that you're wasting your life and yeah. that you're lonely and isolated and alienated. And this isn't helping. Like this is actually like making it worse and you're building up habits that it's, they're going to be hard to overcome. So you have this nagging suspicion that this is kind of hollow. And what I've, the, and then this is where irony comes in. Irony is a way of like calling attention to that, flattering you for noticing that and now making it like, okay, because we're all making fun of it in this really self-aware way and we're uh, engaged in this at the meta level. So it's almost another just way of thinking, okay, now I really have companions and we're the smart ones and we're the ones who get it and we're the ones who, uh, we're, we, we're in on the joke. But, but essentially it's still doing the same thing that it was doing before we started to be suspicious of, you know, uh, of it. It's like, it's giving us that companionship that we essentially lack and that me that's sense of i don't know like purpose or uh richness that we feel like our life lacks yeah that comes from normal interaction so yeah one of the the things that he starts out with is the statistic that the average american family the average american watches six hours of tv a day which is a pretty staggering number given that you know people get home from work at at five six yeah i night. never fully understood <laughs> it's great it's crazy i guess it's just on like People would come home, turn on the TV. You know, my childhood, left to my own devices, that would be, you know, I would come home from school, turn the TV on, and it might not go off until, uh, until like. Definitely, right. but like, we weren't left to our own devices, and our parents <laughs> weren't doing that. And 
No. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like they, they could, like, we weren't, my parents weren't anti-TV, but, like, you know, even when I was watching what they would think was a lot, it would be, like, three hours a day. Yeah. I just looked it up, actually. That's three hours a day is the estimate uh, nowadays. But now we have the, the internet well, now, and yeah. stuff, yeah. Um, and that's way bigger than yeah, that, yeah, you know? Yeah. Do you get those weekly reports of how much you're on your phone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's, it's because I work on my iPad, too, so it's it completely, like... Um, Excuse it, but keep, keep telling yourself that. <laughs> um, but one of the things that that uh, Wallace points out is that you you could imagine that TV is voyeurism. That we're scratching this itch by watching others, like we're watching others and others' lives, and that this is somehow fulfilling. But he points out that TV is really not like voyeurism because TV people are people who are who know they're being watched. They are skilled at portraying and displaying a, their persona, their character, the situations they're in, in a way that is deeply unnatural. Right? It's like actually not what life is. It's this, it's a veneer. It's like it, it's tricking you into thinking that's what life is. So, you know, it says, look at the difference between when when a real person gets in front of a camera and how like hard it is for them to look at all natural. These are people who know they're being watched and that's their whole job. I think that that he's making this point to say this is uh, a very artificial situation where we are watching other human beings um, thinking that we're watching, you know, in you know, it's very parasocial. We're thinking that we're we're engaging in this social activity, but really, really, we're not. And like exactly what you said. There is this, he says, look, a lot of people, especially at this time, I remember people used to just make fun of TV. They, they would say like critics, anybody hoity-toity thought that TV was a complete waste of time and that it was dumb and that people who watched a lot of TV were dumb. And is that, you know, they could make up all sorts of reasons. But I, what I like about what Wallace says here is he says, look, we watch it because it's fun. Like at the end of the day, we watch this stuff because it's entertaining. It's just that. When you watch something, whether or not it's fun and entertaining, when you watch it for six hours a day, something is going to happen, right? There is going to be some, some downstream effect um, that what you're watching will have on you. And he talks about a few of these, but you know, one of them is that like people get picked to be on TV because they're beautiful, they're pretty, they're fun to look at, and um, you start thinking that you need to be pretty, and you're you also have a mirror, and you're not pretty, so like you start feeling shitty about yourself. This has its contemporary analogs. You know? <laughs> this <laughs> is Instagram. Does. This is you know yeah. Like, yeah yeah, but that it's that that irony is the was the sort of solution to that is I think just such a good point. It's it's and it's not an obvious one to me at all. I think it's just deeply insightful. It's deeply insightful. I want to talk about the extent to which that's true today, but I think it is absolutely right. You know, in the context of what he's talking about, I think the best example of it is is advertisements, right? Like TV ads. At a certain point, it became clear that you couldn't do some really sincere. Uh, th- our product is the best product. Right. I mean, it's not that you couldn't do it, but that people were just primed to make fun of that. And so commercials started just uh, taking that into account, being very self-aware that they're commercials. 
now, like, there's no insurance company that would ever do, like, a straightforward commercial. <laughs> no. Like, a car, you know, like, they all have their little progressive, you know, or the Geico or, you know, yeah. flow and progressive. Like, they, it's like everything is a meta, meta, meta joke yeah. now with ads. And the, I think what he points out is that this was happening at kind of every level of TV. And, and, yeah. and you know, then that is the way that TV was changing even at that time compared to what it was in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Um, he has, I think a good example of, of these ads, um, like the Joe, I don't think it's his example. He's citing, he's citing another essay that talks about the Joe Isuzu ads, which I remember vividly, which is, you know, <laughs> yeah. it really was like the thing about being sincere is that you can get mocked. Like you are very vulnerable to mockery. And so the minute that people started um, realizing that, you know. Of course, you're a fucking insurance company. You're going to say your insurance company is the best and you need us. Like, like we're like, of course, that's what you're going to do. So what's the point of doing that? Like, at least uh, flatter people into seeing that you already know that. Totally. There's and then I don't know if if um, he's. Speaking of this, this as the same sort of force of metaness or as a parallel one, but he talks about um, St. Elsewhere and the Mary Tyler Moore show and the Mary Tyler Moore production company. He's talking about TV getting increasingly self-referential where there was some episode of St. Elsewhere where there was a a person who who was like a mental patient who believed he was Mary Tyler Moore. And um, and then. You know, you realize Betty White, was in, Betty White who was in the and Mary he Tyler called her the character that Betty White was playing on yeah, Mary Tyler Moore, which yeah. is a very, you know, it's actually yeah. before it's time in terms of that level of self-reference. Um, um, yeah. And they was all produced by the Mary Tyler Moore production company. So that's why they yeah. had like the rights to the name, you know, Rhoda or whatever. <laughs> um, and it ends with the guy throwing up his hat like she <laughs> yeah, did at the end exactly, of the thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so maybe because. TV was uh, an industry that was dominated by by production, a handful of production companies and networks. It maybe that's why it was easy to be self referential, but but um, that level of meta-ness started really um, uh, taking hold. And so he he talks about Murphy Brown and Max Headroom, right, being shows about shows um, or shows about TV, and it did snowball and. You said this earlier. Yeah. The reason it makes you feel good is because you're in the know. Like, yeah, exactly. You, you being in the know, you knowing that like we're all like, yeah, wink, wink is a better feeling, I guess, than that feeling of like my, you know what? My family isn't like the cleavers on Leave it to be Right. You know? Exactly. So, I mean, like, but, you know, you still had these sitcoms that are about working class households who have flawed people have the same problems that we all do. And even The Simpsons, you know, has Homer at the center of it, you know. But The Simpsons was very aware that it was an animated television (laughs) show and would go out of its way to, like, do meta jokes about that. And they're funny and I loved them. And, like, I'm a sucker for that. And, like, I think Larry Sanders' show is, like, a a prime example of this. And I guess that's kind of mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Or, uh, you know, this is, like, the docu, the mockumentary kind of thing. But not exactly. It's more just, like, a behind the scenes 
of a talk show, but with real celebrities playing themselves, the humor of those episodes would be based on your knowing what the persona of the celebrity was compared to how they're acting on the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. yeah. And it was like really fun, but it was so steeped in this kind of cynical irony about, you know, celebrity and vanity and all of that. Absolutely. Where where it's just like, it's fun trying to figure out how much of this person is th- mm-hmm. th- them really or them portraying their character. Right. Good, 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 good. Hey, hey Larry, I uh, saw that tape of Hank, man. Oh. That's some kind of hog he's got on him, huh? I'm glad the Fonz is sitting here between us. I feel okay. kind of safe. You look really good, Hank. Very centered. Life must be good, huh? I'm drunk. I just heard that, that you are you're coming out with some kind of a tape, an exercise tape. Congratulations. What is that, a joke? What, are you trying to be funny? You know, you, you can't just uh, bang a, a jukebox and go, hey, and all your problems disappear, Fonzie. It worked for me. I go fuck yourself. Hey, hey, you know dear friend of mine. He bought everybody banana bread. Keep Larry your sweaters. Don't pick on him. You want to pick on somebody? Pick on Norm McDonald. He didn't bring anything. I'm just kidding, me. You're very funny, man. You know, it's true. You're very funny. Uh, really, I just want to say that my children love the uh, news update you do on Saturday Night Live. Hey, have you seen Hank's tape? Man, it's unbelievable. That guy's got a huge cock on it. Then why is he so upset? And this very feels like Generation X to me. I know that he he's technically not that, but it's not a boomer thing. It feels like that the level of irony slash sarcasm slash meta-ness that emerged in TV shows in the 90s was like, I feel like I came up with it. And yeah, but I think, yeah, what he's describing is Gen X. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then what would then turn into like the disaffected, like grungy 90s, you yeah. know, which is what he's, he's saying right now already, like he, he finds it like appalling. This yeah. just kind of apathetic, you know, blank cynicism. I mean, I I'll refusal t- to take anything seriously, uh, you know? Yeah. I, um, it it's exa- it, it got exhausting and to me the pe- peak exhausting of like the sarcastic humor the put down humor was uh, for me uh Matt Perry on friends who was supposed to be the funny guy but all of his jokes were just nothing but sarcastic a- and yeah. they were only funny because they were sarcasm like they weren't even really that funny that's what that's the point that i first realized oh like uh, a lot of humor is just people kind of being sarcastic dicks to each other, you know, yeah. it's, it's, and it's not, it's low effort. You know, all you have to say is like, Oh really? You know, and that would get a laugh. Well, you know, it's interesting that friends and some of those kind of shows that are, that friends pioneered, you know, leading into maybe like the American office or something like that. Teenagers like our girl's age, they 
loved those shows yeah. and would just that's all they would watch because they still provide this kind of companionship yeah. in in your this like increasingly like alienated totally. uh, society and like it it is this kind of comfort it's like uh, keeping you company when you're bored and lonely yeah there's porn and then there's these shows <laughs> yeah and it's good at it yeah we we talked about yeah. Gen Z like I'm not sure if they're not on this like th- you know three three meta levels up in their enjoyment of it but whatever it is. I think they just enjoyed it. Like they, I mean, they enjoyed it. Like we, well, I, I never watched friends, but like, uh, like I think people enjoyed it at the time with that same, like, this isn't good, but it's fun to be around. Well, they thought it was good, but, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. They, they were mistaken, but they thought it was fun to be around too. (laughs) It was fun to be around, but I think like it, it is like, it does serve that purpose. Like it didn't, friends didn't for me, but other stuff did like that, I think. But then TV just completely changed. There's nothing that David Foster Wallace says that would apply to what happened. And I think especially like in the two. it started like the 2000 to 2010, yeah. you know, like between that period it, that, you know, it's like a gold, a new golden age. And you have shows that are not ironic. Yeah. Like that's not the, like Deadwood is not ironic. It's not self-aware. It's just fucking great. Yeah. It's just art. And so the Sopranos, the wire, sometimes they have like uh, a social purpose, but they are not, you know, they'll make little meta jokes like McNulty pretending to do a British accent, you know, know and yeah. uh oh. so they'll make little jokes like that but that's not at all the point of the show right you know like it has a serious like artistic moral purpose a lot of these shows and that's just not like covered in no the, uh, yeah it wasn't that. can, can yeah. i read this i'm just gonna read this paragraph that that yeah. sort of encapsulates i think the view of tv that was common and probably justified um but because at the end um is where Dave Foster Wallace says something that I think is actually really interesting, and I don't know if it's true, but I wanted to see what you thought. So he says, it's undeniable that television is an example of quote-unquote low art, the sort of art that tries too hard to please. Because of the economics of nationally broadcast, advertiser-subsidized entertainment, television's one goal, never denied by anybody in or around TV since RCA first authorized field tests in 1936, is to ensure as much watching as possible. TV is the epitome of low art and its desire to appeal to and enjoy the attention of unprecedented numbers of people. But TV is not low because it is vulgar or prurient or stupid. It is often all these things, but this is a logical function of its need to please audience with a capital A. And I'm not saying that television is vulgar and dumb because the people who compose audience are vulgar and dumb. And this is the claim here. Television is the way it is simply because people tend to be really similar in their vulgar and prurient and stupid interests and wildly different in their refined and moral and intelligent interests. It's all about syncretic diversity. Neither medium nor viewers are responsible for quality. So, I mean, that's interesting. And like that would it would give a very clean explanation for what's changed, which is that now you can appeal to different refined noble interests. I think exactly that's exactly because, right. And the, co- yeah. the economics have changed so that it still is uh, all about keeping you watching as much as possible. But yeah. it's like Netflix keeping you watching as much as possible. So here's like 8 million shows, please keep watching Netflix. It's not about like will you exactly. watch Cheers and and Frasier. So I was thinking about this with Hulu or something like mm-hmm. that. Like um, you know, Hulu has Atlanta and it has uh, like this new show, The Bear, you know, and these yeah. shows 
are they're art. You know, yeah. they are for a very specific taste, and I am those tastes, and I guarantee that that's not like the majority of what makes Hulu their money. But what it does do is get people like me to be like, oh, I gotta have Hulu. Yeah. And, you know, so all these other things that have more mass appeal, you know, they can have, but it's it doesn't hurt them at all to just also put up the put these really these things that for a niche maybe kind of pretentious are more artsy inclined you know uh we're we're looking for something different we're looking to be challenged in tv and not like just kept company they can do that now and they couldn't before there was no economic way to to to, uh, it wasn't feasible right you know and people you know some people aren't old enough to to know that tv really was considered low art in that if you were a movie star you and you went on a TV show like that meant you had your star had fallen, um, and that that right. started to change. I think in the nineties. Um, yeah, uh, and then, then like for sure and now, TV, yeah, and now it's like man. Now you have Julia Roberts just doing like season one of Homecoming, like <laughs> yeah. a show that almost nobody has heard of, right. and you know, like directed by Sam Esmail, who's good. It was really good, but like nobody probably knows about it. Yeah, you know, yeah. At the time, like there's no way that that that's something like. So here's what I was thinking. Here's what's changed. Like you have this great, this really good TV that can be more particularized, tailor-made to certain tastes. And some of it can be just really, really good in a way that television couldn't be before. Like a, uh, take artistic risks that you couldn't take um, in that time. But ultimately, here's a question I want to ask. Is it still doing the thing that he's talking about, which is keeping us company and trying to, you know, assuage the nagging feeling that we're wasting our life and we are, you know, not making the meaningful social connections that we ought to be and that there's a kind of emptiness in our lives. Like, and I was thinking that maybe it is doing that still, but just in a much greater diversity of ways than it used to. Like now irony doesn't solve the whole problem anymore, but it doesn't need to. There's, you don't need a single solution to all these problems. You just need multiple solutions to it. Yeah, it's a good question. Here's... The way that I, I think I was interpreting uh, the argument that uh, Wallace was uh, presenting, which is something like this. Um, TV was, you know, rather hom- homogenous and, you know, pretty monolithic, or at least d- controlled by, by some small group of people so that everybody was watching the same stuff. The stuff was uh, low art. It was scratching this itch, but people started to feel shitty. Um, about spending six hours a day watching this bullshit irony comes along sort of dominates us feel better makes us feel better and that irony i think uh dfw wants to say that started eating at the core of of the american psyche because that cynicism that comes with the irony that unwillingness to be sincere and the uh invulnerability that it brings you like takes away the rewards of sincerity and it makes you feel bulletproof against criticism in a way that I think he thinks is very unhealthy. No, no, no. But my point is that like, that just is not true of a lot of the like great television of the two thousands that it is infused with this kind of 
cynical irony. That's what, yeah, yeah. That's the point I'm making, which is okay. that I think that he would say that it's not doing this TV that we're watching now is n- doesn't have that pernicious rotting effect that the TV that he was talking about has. One, because irony was at the center of it. And two, because it was such a cultural force that it was doing it to all Americans. Like it took over the TV waves and that was like the primary emotional way of like reacting to art. And I think that he thought that that was bad. So whether or not watching too much Deadwood is like a waste of life, I think it would be a very different waste of life than what, what um, DFW is trying to say was going on. Yeah. So I think I have a slightly darker interpretation of what's going on. I think he thinks that irony is the latest in the ever evolving ways like that TV is able to uh, keep our attention, you know, and we didn't need it in the you know, 50s and 60s. We needed like an ordinary guy, an ordinary family. And then we started to, you know, that started to bug us. It started to seem too uh, buttoned up. So we started making fun of it. And, um, and, you know, that's where we were. That's where we are now when he's writing it. But I guess I take that, you know, that's going to run its course too, but then there'll be something else. Now, I agree with you, of course, like if we have to be wasting our life, like I'd rather be doing it with Deadwood than with Murder, She Wrote or, (laughs) uh, you know, Dallas or something. But, but I do think I was trying, I was thinking that, you know, like I was thinking of the shows that I love, like Veep, maybe my favorite comedy of all time. Yeah. It is a It's not like self-aware exactly and ironic. I actually think it's very sincere, but it is so deeply cynical about the political institutions um, that we live under. And and I think almost to the point of like nastiness, like I really don't think they're being ironic. It's just right. like, that's what they think like this is. And, and I think they're right in like a lot of these counts. Like they're capturing something. Now, part of me thinks... You know, and so in addition to just being like the funniest, one of the funniest shows of all time, like that's good. Part of me thinks, oh, it's flattering my own skepticism about in contemporary institutions. And in that way, allowing me to be like friends with people who uh, in the same way that, you know, somebody listening to like Chapo or something, it's like, oh, here are these people that are believing things that I believe and they're doing it in an entertaining way. And that's like the cure for loneliness right now you know and even though these things are great uh like succession is like this where it just it feels like you get to be with these other people who are you know exposing the venality and corruption at the heart of like all these things that we hold dear and it's like Maybe that's like the new way, like figure out different ways of getting us all to still do the same thing that we're doing, which is not engage with the real world. Yeah, maybe like I, that's, it's a good, it's a good question. And I don't, like I admit, I hadn't thought of it the way that you're thinking of it um, because I was so focused on the specific damage that the irony part yeah. does. And Corrosive I, yeah, it, yeah. And I think at least in this essay, I mean, I don't think Dave Foster Wallace would disagree with you that that's everything you said could be just as corrosive. But I think that here he was so concerned that there's no way out of the irony trap, like that, that uh, the only cure for irony is sincerity and that just gets easily mocked. And so, and so it's sort of like a cancer. 
Um, so I, there is a part that I wanted to read. It says, so then how have irony, he, he, this is right after he points out that irony originally was intended to point out hypocrisy. Um, and it was, it, it did this job of like exposing the phoniness. And he says, so then how have irony, irreverence, and rebellion come to be not liberating but enfeebling in the culture today's avant-garde tries to write about? One clue is to be found in the fact that irony is still around bigger than ever after 30, year, 30 long years as the dominant mode of hip expression. It's not a mode that wears especially well. As Hyde puts it, irony has only emergency use. Carried over time, it is the voice of the trapped who have come to enjoy their cage. I love that quote. This... This is because irony, entertaining as it is, serves an exclusively negative function. It's critical and destructive, a ground clearing. Surely this is the way our postmodern fathers saw it. But irony is singularly unuseful when it comes to constructing anything to replace the hypocrisies it debunks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I admit I was a little bit convinced by a video essay I watched today. I think that there has been a rise in sincerity that... Uh, Wallace didn't quite see, didn't get to see. And so I watched a video essay, which I can track down. If I remember, we'll put a link to that had a bunch of examples from shows from the aughts where sincerity started to creep back in. So the American office um, parks and rec, where yeah. you still have like characters who are the sarcastic ones and who are the dicks, but there is a heart to it. And there's people who every once in a while truly sort of like, expose their feelings and they're the good people on the show and and i think sincerity has come back a bit but and that's what the by the way like the 18 year olds gravitate towards yeah, or the 15 yeah. year olds you know it's exactly that yeah. that kind of warmth and and sincerity with you know enough self-awareness that you're not talking right. about fiduciary <laughs> duties <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine uh, John writing a TV show. There is a phrase must revolve around a single <laughs> axis. There's a phrase by that I love here. Uh, a couple paragraphs down, he says, make no mistake. Irony tyrannizes us. The reason why our pervasive cultural irony is at once so powerful and so unsatisfying is that an ironist is impossible to pin down. All irony is a variation on a sort of existential poker face. And I just, I thought that was just like the perfect way of describing it. Um, so now to get to your, your point though, about cynicism is one that I hadn't really thought about because like, I don't think that cynicism and sincerity are necessarily conflicting. And in some ways it's better yeah. to be cynical and, and sincere than to be just a sarcastic kind of, the wire is cynical with but also sincere. Yeah. So there's two questions. One is how has the the just the nature of like the the TV uh, shows changed? And the other one is whether or not this has made it better or worse or is it different for us like as Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. What you say makes me realize that I've like conflated two things and I think uh, I, that it's definitely worth separating them. So the first is what television like as a medium does for us, right? Yeah. And the second is the like the the effects of taking this ironic attitude yeah. that has become uh or at least that was dominant and 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 still certainly exists. Like Twitter yeah. is like you could like anything he says about the irony and the attitude yeah. and all the like corrosive effects just applies to Twitter oh, and totally. posters and 
everything is yeah. like this kind of meta level of, uh, you know, and, and with that same kind of like impotence, like there's nothing we can do about it. So we can at least make fun of it. Yeah. And I'm on top. No one can really mock me if I'm always just ironic yeah. about things. Exactly. <clears throat> and like, it's not going to do you any good to be sincere. <laughs> so it's, you know, that's just inescapable. And I think he's right about a lot of that stuff. But I, I think that where I think things have changed is that attitude is not primarily associated with television yeah. anymore. If anything, like that attitude has migrated to part, uh, big parts of the internet and television has gotten significantly more sincere, probably, you know, like in the same way that he was calling for just as yeah. a reaction to you do parks and rec because not everything has to ha be like a bummer and talk about like just how people suck, right. you know, like you can actually also have a show about, uh, flawed, but ultimately good people, yeah. you know? And Bob's Burgers is like that too, kind of, you know? The, this is what I liked about the first season of Ted Lasso. It was mm -hmm. sincerity in a world of, you know, people who were trying to tear down one person's character and he refused to let go of his sincerity. But think about what that show was. Like, it got released in the pandemic yeah. where everybody is desperate yeah. to, like, connect with something. And yeah. it did. It gave off the first season. Like, it, you know, it's in retrospect, it there's was There's only one season. It's, so, like, demonic. There's only one season. But of Ted Lasso? Yeah, there's only one season. That's right. Uh, but uh, it gave people, like, like, I don't even know. I haven't gone back and watched it. But, like, maybe... Yeah. <laughs> like I was just also craving, uh, like I, I, although, yeah, I don't know, but, uh, but, but, but I guess my point is they're, they're still doing the, th even if it's sincere, it's, it's, it's like, we're back to the sixties then, uh, where like we're craving the same thing from television. It just manifests in different forms and it's like cycles through the kinds of forms that it'll be when we get too sincere, it'll go back to being ironic. And when, you yeah, know, the, you know, there, the, not like I was around in the 50s and 60s, but I did watch a lot of Nick at Night that would show all of those old shows mm -hmm. like Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed. The, um, honey, the Honeymooners. Yeah, all that stuff. And I think that the the sincerity also just had this thick layer of positivity, you know, which was just, which sometimes, does, yeah. You know, like yeah, the world. Like Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, like the world yeah. of the 50s sitcom was pretty, like pretty uh, positive, like post-war optimism um it's not exceptionally diverse <laughs> no exactly <laughs> they didn't they didn't film in detroit um they didn't have they didn't have to like explain what they were doing to combat anti-racism right. um <laughs> or no to combat uh to to further, to further anti yeah. yeah um and uh and so the sincerity that's come back around is a sincerity that is at least more sophisticated about rea the reality of, of the world. Um, you know, like, so, to, yeah, so exactly. it's cyclical maybe, but, it, but I think cyclical and an up, maybe, maybe it's an upward spiral. Um, so I think like what he says about irony is, is a hundred percent true. And it's, uh, and it's a very tough problem because it, uh, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, the most pessimistic reading of what he's saying is our society is set up in really deep ways to make us desperate for social connection and, and meaning and purpose and some kind of uh, uh, sense that we're not just biding our sorry, that we're not just biding our time until we die. And 
and like that's the deal television offers a way he's like of addressing that but it but in doing so it becomes like addictive it becomes it becomes like i like what he says about uh you know television both is a problem because now the more you watch tell television the more you withdraw from society yeah you know this could be video games now this could be you know like the uh the internet um or it could still be television but like the people who just watch fox news or cnn all day um but whatever it is it's further isolating you from people and so it both is a like a cause of your problems and offers itself as a solution yeah he said that he said that is yeah. the when he was talking about addiction. I thought it was a really elegant yeah. way of. of <laughs> it is it's yeah. great. Like it's like uh, the Homer Simpson like to beer the cause of and <laughs> solution, solution to <laughs> that's right. all of our problems. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but that's what television offered then, and like I I kind of wonder if like that's one thing that hasn't changed. You know, certainly if you broaden television to include you know, uh, maybe more of the visual internet, YouTube, things like that. You well, know? this is the thing, you know, you talked about the rise of prestige TV and how, how, you know, these, there are these amazing shows. So it's not just all low base art. Um, but the, the rise of the, the proliferation of production of, of all kinds of TV shows that fill a niche, um, means that there are a ton of really stupid things out there now and like not i don't want to judge anybody because people i very much love watch a lot of reality tv but to me reality tv is is like the lowest common denominator of of this stuff yeah. right it's not the the wires and the deadwoods and the sopranos which i don't feel shitty after watching three hours of those i just don't like i don't like i don't know i used to of, of, of like the uh, Sopran- reality no, 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 shows of, like the sopranos or of the oh yeah yeah you know, of course I, no you feel like it's like checking <laughs> off you feel productive yeah i but i do i do remember that feeling of like having the tv on all like i realized wow this tv's been on all day like on a yeah. sunday and i haven't done sh- and i did feel like shit um yeah uh, and that reality tv like whatever or whatever you want to put in there i'm sure that there is a ton of stuff that now like scratches the itch of people who have no interest in in like the higher art of prestige TV. But but I guess the point is like okay like here's a the more cynical way of viewing what you're saying right your tastes aren't for the Bachelor your tastes aren't for you know like um, the Big Bang Theory or whatever you want to be flattered by Deadwood and M- Mad Men I don't even know if you like Mad Men and not really but Dark yeah. and like these <laughs> yeah. things. So like, um, so that's your way of like withdrawing from society, but feeling like you're not. Whereas with other people, it's, uh, these reality shows, but in the end it's having the same effect. And I agree. Like I've, I, I, there are times where I can binge watch something and I feel terrible about it. Like, like I, I start like, you know, figuring out a way to not let myself do that again. And then there are other times where I'm like, that was a great day. You know, like I watched like four of the, but it's, but the fact that we feel better about it doesn't mean that it's not having the like bad effects that he's talking about. Cause I think Joe briefcase sometimes feels like he's had a good day watching his shows too. Um, but what he doesn't realize and what we may not realize is it is 
still uh, eating away at like our, our ability to bond with others. Yeah. yeah. And, and our soul. Yeah. That like that, I'm very open to the possibility that in that specific way, that um, isolation uh, of uh, that, that TV can bring by, by full, by entertaining, but by entertaining you for that many hours might prevent you from actually going out and like meeting up with people. But I want to resist a little bit, like lumping them all together, and I'm going to p- appeal. Well, I wasn't lumping them all together. Oh, okay. I was just saying that, that it might, like, have the, might have similar. Effects. It still might have the same effect that on you that it does on Joe Priest, yeah, who a, watches the lo- the lower brow the, the stuff. Lower, yeah, it's and it's already kind of arrogant to be to be categorizing low and highbrow, but I'm going to keep doing it. But I'm going to appeal to it's a your fiduciary. <laughs> I'm going to appeal to a conversation that I know we had, and I don't remember which episode it was, but it was about the very, like about whether art can be, you know, like you can say that some art is better than other art because of what it does to you. And I think that there yeah. is something that is of real value that I get in some of these TV shows that is not unlike what I get in reading whatever good yeah. war history or, or whatever that that actually does leave me with something that other lower common denominator stuff doesn't leave me with like i will admit i i've been watching shark tank uh, it's like the only yeah. reality tv show that i watch and oh it's- mr oh you know like, <laughs> i am above all this reality show bullshit <laughs> As I, I admit it um uh and i <laughs> it reminds well i won't um and but i do feel eh, like i wasted a night when i watch it it's but in the moment i'm totally yeah. entertained um but i don't feel the same as if like i watch atlanta like i did have this weird thing where i was in a hotel one night and saw like the last half of a big brother and this was a long time ago this was when like it was like the second reality yeah. show or something like that uh it was either big brother or like the bachelor i think it was the bachelor or the bachelorette and um i just started seeing myself invested in this and i was like i want to see the next one and then i was like nope you're not doing this <laughs> like and then like i really never watched another react like i i just kind of knew that i could right you know it was like with lost i was the same way i was like i could get yeah. like really invested with this but it's not worth my time <laughs> and so like for that one for that single genre like i was able to prevent myself good job yeah. good job yeah, thank you um you know, can I, we talk a little bit about the end of of this essay? David Foster Wallace talks about this guy um, Gilder, who. who Before yeah. I, I want to say one other thing about what you're sure. saying because I agree with you that um, the you know like that there is like this stuff is better. Like you know, it's not just like oh, like Deadwood tailors to my taste. Yeah. But uh, you know, whatever the fuck, yeah, you're you're a realist about the truth. NCIS yeah. is uh, tailors to uh, this person's taste, and you can't compare one or the other. But they're both doing the same thing. They're definitely not. Um, but like, I I think that wait, actually, I had something good to say about this. Um, what the fuck? It just vanished from my mind. <laughs> well, this is, oh, okay. Now I remember. Okay. So uh, I, there's this one interaction that I had a, as a kid when I was, um, when I was trying to convince my parents to get cable. 
you know, yeah. and it was like, it was coming out and, I, but you know, not everybody had it. And so I was trying to convince my parents and there's this old lady, like I, from the time I was probably 12 or something. She seemed like an old lady to me. I don't know how old she was, but I remember like talking to them and she happened to be at our house. And I said to her, she was a very nice old lady, very like genial, warm old lady. And I said to her, you know, like what I'm trying to tell them is that it's not, uh, more TV, it's better TV. And she says, right. I like, I, she was like, I don't dispute that it's better TV, but the point is when the TV is not good, you do something else. You read a book <laughs> or you play outside uh, or you, um, you know, but uh, so like, I think maybe one concern is it's not that these things aren't better. It's actually almost a problem that it's better because if it were, if it wasn't better, like we would be actually doing other stuff huh. that, um, yeah. that so, and, and so maybe that's like the most worrisome part of like what TV does is it just keeps proliferating to the point where there's always something that good that you can watch, but then you're not doing these other things that you would otherwise do. Like, you know, when you have a power out of it and all of a sudden you're like talking to your neighbors and, um, yeah. you know, going for like long bike right. rides or something, right. you know? Right. There, there is, um, uh, what's the right metaphor? I, it's just like, you can be the best thing of like something that's not good. And right. and I wanted right. to say the world's tallest midget, but I don't think that that's allowed. <laughs> so have the to... title of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> the world's tallest little person. Um, <clears throat> and... We're going to get a bad score from SBSP. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, me, that it's hard to argue with that. Like that, if if it's the case that I really would be doing other like more valuable things. I'm not convinced that I would be. <laughs> like, I might well, that's the question is like, are we going to find some bullshit to do anyway? Yeah. And if that's true, like then, then like, again, that's consistent with like, we're broken. Like yeah. society is set up wrong for us to be doing meaningful things. So we might as well at least get better at doing the stuff that is compatible with living in our society. You know, I was going to, I was going to flippantly say like, what do you want me to do? Play board games? Like, how is that any better? But, 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 right. that, but that's actually that is better. Fun. Yeah. That's like, yeah, you're interacting with other human beings in a way like the There is just an, an enemy that comes from, from the, that complete solitary individualist nature. Even if you're watching, I mean, I, I find it rewarding to watch like with Nikki so that we can talk about the stuff, but it's still not like sitting and talking. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like 90% of my relationship with my daughter <laughs> involves us like watching some kind of screen, but like, well, like, but, but it's also talking about it and like, it's just, yeah. And that's what, um, hold on. My, I gotta pause my pause the not pause the recording. no no i'm pausing my dropbox because the it started getting choppy i started losing you yeah. and i saw that it was inking something um i will say this for better or for worse uh there is something that i deeply miss and i think i've said it on this podcast before about the days when tv was shitty as it was we all watched it together and we could talk about the same tv 
and and yeah. I remember excitedly, you know, on Friday morning, talking to my friends about the Cosby Show in a different world because like we all watched it, and and I missed that, and and TV just plays a, such a big role in my psyche. Like I feel like I grew up in the eighties, just eighties cartoons and 80s sitcoms and it's something that my whole generation shares and letterman like the biggest like that's like such a phenomenon that like if you were like if you were of the demographic that we were like you just loved fucking letterman and he and it was exactly encapsulated the the kind of ironic stance that he's talking about but in the best way (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) he's like one of the best examples of that yeah no totally uh I and there is like a common we we have like a lingua franca of stupid references that we can make to each other that we just can't anymore to our kids and and you know this is why we're like Gen Wheezy. <laughs> yeah. This is why Gen X is like the laughing stock of Gen Z when when we're teaching them and we try to make references like the the world is in the entertainment and internet world is in shambles. Like you, you can make a reference that maybe three out of like 50 kids will get. And maybe, you know, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> no, that's true. Like when you're teaching, you notice this, um, you know, there's certain holdovers like, uh, the Simpsons and yeah. South park. And they also watch the same Sim. like they, like they're watching the early Simpsons, not the later Simpsons. And, um, but still you're right. Like it's so fractured right now, but at yeah. the same time, like probably more than ever, like if there's some show say like severance or something like that, that catches on all of a sudden. Now you have not a, not the whole country and not your students and not, but you have a whole group of people that you can talk to about that. And something that exciting now, you know, used to come out like once every five years and now it comes out like, like five times a year, you know, like there's, there's a lot of shows that I really like that I'd never heard of before in the beginning of 2022. There's no way that would happen, you know, like, no, absolutely. TV was, I I find it very hard to describe to say my daughter, how bad TV was. Like you would literally turn on the TV. Like what I had 13 channels as a kid. Right. And, and three networks and, you chose the least bad of the things that was on the TV. Man, I'd watch fucking Alice. <laughs> yeah, I watched Alice, man. <laughs> like, Mel Diner. Like, Mel, kiss my grits. <laughs> I was like all over that. Uh, and you knew it was like, it, it's exactly what he describes where you knew, even as a kid, you knew, oh, you know. I know. Like, I knew I shouldn't I be, spend my time watching Small Wonder <laughs> after school. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, that one. <laughs> that one was poor. We uh, that one we actually like we we had this like ping pong tournament and the Stop loser it, had Tamler. to watch two small wonders like and and they like they had to provide evidence that they watched two whole small wonders. <laughs> so you might have been more like I mean, into I, that. I, show. Well, I I joke about our we I were, joke about our age difference all the time, but but our age difference actually does mean a lot in terms of like how old we were in the eighties to watch. Right. I was up in high school. You were like like, beginning of high school. Yeah. Junior high. (laughs) (laughs) Punky Brewster, you know, silver spoons, fucking different strokes. Silver spoons. Like when I was young, I I think I non ironically enjoyed it. 
Oh, for sure. <laughs> but yeah. but the point is, maybe what we've done is not address the problem. We've just like figured out a better way of being fucked by the problem. Right? You know? Have we polished? But the, the problem turd. really is that we're like we yearn for something that we can't have. Yeah, we've polished the turd, but the turd is yeah. the turd. Um, uh, and that's why I pre-commit to talking to you for three hours at least once every other week. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Like, you know, not only are there these like, like, like five or six probably per year of just really interesting, cool shows that you, that you can watch, but you can also just like read about, like read really smart people, say interesting things yeah. about them and listen to podcasts about them. And again, all of this is satisfying. I think this need that we get sometimes doing this, yeah. right. Of just being excited about something meaningful in a pretty sincere way. Yeah. like being excited about something that you think is great and sharing that with somebody else and now there's way more ways of having that experience and i don't even think it's unhealthy in all cases or even most cases like it's really like i love if i've just saw a, a, a cool movie knowing that i have like a great podcast about it and like four good articles and analyses and reviews yeah. of it like that's awesome i'm like a pig and shit but maybe that's just polishing the turd like you said yeah, yeah. i don't More know polish. all i know is uh i fucking enjoy tv i can't wait to talk about deadwood again <laughs> yes i know well none nothing bad about tv applies to deadwood. <laughs> yeah nothing bad period applies to um it's, yeah. So I don't know if we have time or if it's worth it to talk about the, the end. Oh, yeah. You wanted to go to. to yeah. The, so this guy, Gilder, um, Foster Wallace sort of takes him on and he says, like, this guy, Gilder, thinks that with the advent of computers and um, with the decentral kind of like decentralization of of TV production. And he says that with a transistor, will you know everybody will be able to play like the producer, like the the guy with the clipboard, and we won't have the same issues that we have with TV now. And David Foster Wallace sort of dismisses it, um, not just technology. I mean, he doesn't think it's going to solve the problem, but he seems to dismiss that that's what's going to happen anyway. That, um, but really, I, I I didn't maybe maybe necessarily. maybe not maybe not. He definitely doesn't think that it's going to resolve the problem. But he seems to be a little skeptical of the 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 big companies would ever relinquish power over what was on uh, on TV, no matter how small transistors got. But I think now, when you look at YouTube, you really can't like anybody can put something up on YouTube and everybody has access to it. And it's just another example of like the, everything we've been talking about, which is the fragmentation of everything, but also just the real niche, uh, that, that is created. Like you could watch, like I've been watching stuff about wristwatches cause I've been like loving wristwatches lately. I just spend so much time watching shit up, you know, some guy made in his basement to be talking about the latest, whatever <laughs> wristwatch. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's certain stuff like, like I love watching video essays about movies on YouTube and it's like, I feel good. Like, it's like, I'm really learning more stuff. It's, it's, it's like enriching yeah. my uh, ability to uh, appreciate a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It's, and, but it's very fragmented and it is probably, you know, keeping us maybe from doing something that, you know, we haven't ta been political about this, but uh, you certainly could be and say this is all a way of kind of numbing us and making us just either accepting of the status quo or 
in the case of like all these very high, you know, these shows that are so cynical about capitalism and political structures that support it, it makes us feel like, wow, yeah, we, we get this, you know, there's nothing we can do because they're too powerful. So it still kind of instills this fatalism in us, but it makes us feel like, well, you know, we're not the ones that are, you <laughs> yeah. know, like we get it and we're opposed to it. And if you, know, you support like, the so right it, shows, the world will change. <laughs> I mean, you know, like there are shows that make you feel not that, but like th- we get it, yeah. you know, like yeah. we get how corrupt everybody is. But it, but it's, you know, like it almost re- these things can reinforce that sense of just pure fatalism and kind of nihilism about it. And it's not, it's, I mean, they're bad, they're bad shows or that they're destructive. They're good. They're really uncovering stuff. Yeah. But I wonder if it has this also kind of maintaining the status right. quo. Right. That's fact. the question. Would I be doing something if it weren't for that? Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this part, uh, where in speaking of, um, Gilder's view that uh, pretty soon everybody like there will be so many people producing different kinds of entertainment. Yeah. It's it's a really <laughs> it's super uncanny. Um, uh, Dave Foster Wallace says something that I I think is insightful. I don't know if it's true, but but it's definitely made me think. He said the passivity and schizoid decay still endure for Laner and his character's reception of images and waves of data. He's referring to somebody who had uh, envisioned a Gilder esque dystopia where there is all this choice he says the ability to combine them only adds a layer of disorientation when all experience can be deconstructed and reconfigured there become simply too many choices and in the absence of any credible non-commercial guides for living the freedom to choose is about as liberating quote-unquote as a bad acid trip each quantum is as good as the next and the only standard of an assembly's quality is its weirdness and congruity, its ability to stand out from a crowd of other image constructs and wow some audience. Which could describe the state of affairs. Now, there is so much that it might be daunting to try to choose. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it can be paralyzing. Yeah. For sure. And, but you know, this um, is where algorithms actually <laughs> make a difference. <laughs> like, oh my god! The the YouTube algorithm tells me stuff. It was going to, <laughs> tells me what to watch like next. Algorithm yeah. pro- propaganda. Uh, I love the algorithms for that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Do you worry that it's a problem that it's not just informing you of stuff that is to your taste, but shaping your tastes? Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely shaping my tastes. Like, but but in a way that I feel like I have I have agency over it so so suppose that i'm watching a bunch of like uh you know videos about um sound right mix mixing it will show me maybe something about video production and if i click on that then it'll start showing me a bunch of stuff about video production and i might get really into that so in that sense it can really shape my interests but in a way that i actually enjoy like it doesn't feel nefarious but it i think it very well can be nefarious in the political sphere where it starts shaping um, opinions that aren't just about like what stupid nerd shit you like. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Your YouTube like wristwatch uh, (laughs) rabbit hole. It's funny today. I just today I watched a a YouTube video suggested to me about, uh, 20 facts about the usual suspects that you might not have known. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, Are you immensely pleased? I am. 
join us next time on Very Bad Wizards.